0: Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to schedule and subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now we're gonna get into today's episode. And what's gonna be fun about this particular conversation here is we're going to be uh, speaking on the topic of business brokerage. Like if you're looking for somebody to help you sell your business, for instance. One of the goals that business creators should have in mind whenever they are starting or growing a business is saleability. If it's solopreneurial, the chances of it being saleable are very slim. However, if you have an organization, a structure, and a general blueprint for doing things, you may increase your saleability. And I have been very excited for a while to do a topic on Business Creators Radio revolving around using a broker to sell your business because it's something we haven't done for a long time, if at all. And I think that this is a conversation that if you have saleability and ultimately checking out in mind as part of your, your business plan, you should be having this conversation sooner than later. So let's have it now with... The Hardest Working Business Broker You'll Ever Meet. What a title. This man, his name is Chad Peterson. He is the founder of Peterson Acquisitions. His website is petersonacquisitions.com. He's a serial entrepreneur, author, and renowned business broker. He successfully handles business transactions across the United States and abroad in some cases. Deals from $1 million to $25 million plus. Chad handles the transactions from start to finish with tenacity and results. He lives a wonderful life traveling and making deals with movers and shakers throughout the world. Chad Peterson, come on in. The weather's fine.
1: Hey, thank you for having me and I appreciate the wonderful introduction and I'm glad to be on your show.
0: All right, we did have a wonderful introduction. We always lead by sharing our guest's official bio, and they're all fantastic. But what we like to do here on Business Creators Radio, and our listeners, I think, can kind of hear the drum roll already. By now, we probably have some listeners who have opened a separate browser tab. They're leaning in. They're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, looking to discover more about this Chad Peterson business broker petersonacquisitions.com that's the website so what we'd like to do is take a step back have tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today where you help business creators win at the game of business and marketing by serving from their intersection of their brilliance and their passion while making a difference for their community market and audience
1: Well, I love that you are talking about passion because as a passionate young entrepreneur, I have, I built, I built and sold businesses of of my own most of my life. That's really all I've ever done. I I would build a company and sell it, build it and sell it. And then I started helping other people do it. And I, I soon enough, I became a unpaid consultant. And as you know, that's a brutal place to be. Yes. I was helping other people you know, help build their business, help sell them. And pretty soon I'm looking around going, why am I doing this? And it was a friend of mine that suggested to me, you know, you're so good at this. Why don't you start doing this for a living for other people? And I was like, you know what? I'm busy doing my own thing. I'm just helping people along the way. I was building and selling companies on my own. And then eventually that little whisper he gave to me grew into an exciting passion and it drove me to, go full time helping other people exit their business or get it or get them ready to sell. And the long story short is that at my very core I'm an entrepreneur. I understand right. business, I understand marketing. I understand how to take a business from a shoestring budget and a, a hope and a prayer and make it into a successful business that is ultimately sellable. And I no longer really want to be on the field you know, so to speak, playing, I want to be the coach on the sideline now. And that's, and that's where I'm at in my career. Cause I've built and sold six companies of my own and my passion has turned from owning to coaching. And that's really what I love to do. Okay. And I think that
0: as business creators, we many of us do go through those evolutions where it gets to a point where And I've heard this from some folks. It feels like they've done enough, and now they want to pay it forward in the form of helping others achieve the same thing. And as soon as you said unpaid consultants, I – yeah, uh, a lot of us have been there, so I get it.
1: And as a business owner, how often do you have to get red hot to make one of your employees lukewarm? You know, I mean, I've had, I've probably employed over a thousand people. And when I look back at my career and all the people that I've hired and employed, there's, there's two people that come to mind that were superstars, that were incredible people, that were stand up guys, you know, Ecclesiastes 728, Solomon wrote, I've searched all yeah. the land and haven't found, but one upright man among them. I hire a thousand people. You're probably going to find that one guy in there. That's an absolute superstar. And when I look back, I was fortunate enough to have two, but one of the things that drove me out of being self-employed was me getting red hot to get them lukewarm. I just couldn't continue to do it. I had lost my stomach for that particular side of business. So after building and selling six businesses, which feels like it was a hundred years, okay? I feel like I put a hundred years inside of 41 years. Yeah. Um, I was just ready to no longer throw the ball and catch the ball. I was ready to sit on the sideline and show people what to do because I have a different vantage point. I have a a much different vantage point from where I stand now, given all of my experience. So that's why why I'm going to be doing this until my last dying breath. I, yeah, I won't, I won't retire. I think retirement is man Uh, I think it's created by financial planning companies, wealth management companies. I think a man has to work and I'll be here working until my last breath doing exactly what I'm doing now at Peterson acquisitions, because I love speaking to business owners because they are my people. You know, it's really hard, Adam, to, to, go sit down with somebody at a bar and have a beer. And, um, you know, let's just say they work in a cubicle at some cell phone company or something. You know, I have a really hard time communicating to those guys. I really don't have much to say to them. There's not much resonance between me and them. There's not much fabric. I get it. I guess we can talk about the game, but then again, I'm not really much in the sports to begin with. So I don't have a lot of commonality with people that aren't, self-employed. The self-employed are my tribe. And I think it's, I think it's important to have your tribe to define your tribe and to stick with them. And so this career of mine, helping business owners succeed not only in their business now, but also in exiting is a perfect place for me to be. And as you've said a few times, passion, without passion, there's no profit. So if you're not passionate Uh about something, you're not profitable. And I'm super passionate about what I do, and I'm glad to be talking to your listeners. You know, I, I
0: myself, I mean, I, I deal with people in all walks of life, and if somebody has a job or they are a cubicle dweller, and most of us have been there before, and they actually have a passion about it, that will come through and it'll actually make for some interesting stories and you can discover more about them, you can discover more about the environment of business. So I don't disagree one bit with what you're saying that there are certain types of people that we can relate to better than others. To me, it comes back to the passion thing. If, I, if they don't have it and they don't convey it, then it's not going to capture my interest regardless of whether they have, uh, whether they're solopreneurial, whether they are the head of a leveraged organization that they own, Or they are an employee of somebody else. Doesn't matter, regardless. Uh, My similar experience, I guess, in some ways, to what you encounter when it's, you know, I mean, I have a hard time just sitting in a bar at all because that whole environment just doesn't work for me, but that's just me. Um, Correct. Correct. Yeah. uh, With me, it's the folks who ask me questions like, gee, uh, I thought you were the boss of your company. Why are you? Working tonight, or what are you doing? Working in this business on Saturday afternoon, and my answer is quite simple. Um, you know, if I were to wake up one morning with an awful toothache, I could be in a dentist chair in an hour. Yes, freedom. What if you're nine to fivers? What do you have to do? You have to request time off. And be lectured by a supervisor about how you selfishly needing to rush to the dentist is putting your entire team in straits.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, freedom is at the heart of every entrepreneur. I mean, I, I believe that to be true. Right. So I, we, we, we go work for freedom. We, yeah. We, we think we work for money, but what are we really ultimately getting down to? It's, it's working for money to buy yourself freedom. That's what it is
0: yeah I think there's another, I think there's another thing out there, and you know we see a lot of this with elected officials. Um, have you ever heard of the idea of somebody who holds a political office being called lazy because their schedule is not full of meetings?
1: Absolutely.
0: You have sure. heard of that. We're not going to get into personalities or who they say that about. Now let me take this one step further. Uh, what tends to get accomplished in a lot of meetings?
1: Not a lot. A lot exactly.
0: exactly. A lot so if I'm going to, yeah, yeah, so exactly. If I were a political office holder, holder um, I'd be concerned if I was booked for meetings from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. because I'd actually beginning, be, start beginning to ask, how is this serving my constituents? How is this me rendering the services of the people who elected me, whether I'm the president, a governor, a mayor, a council person, whatever? Well, I'll
1: tell you, I speak from personal experience on this. And if yeah. I go into a meeting – I don't care if it's a meeting uh, that, that, that will pay me $4 million or whether it's going to pay me $4,000. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to let everybody know my expectations. I had a meeting today um, at 1130, and it was one of those things that I had to tell them, look, I'm not here to waste time, and if, if this is a wasteful meeting, let's end it now. I'm not here to waste time. I have no time to waste. I have 168 hours a week. So do you. So does Elon Musk. So does Jeff (laughs) Bezos. So does the president. We have 168 hours and how, how I utilize and monetize those 168 is important to me. And if it's not to you then we're, we're in the wrong room together.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I I gotta tell you, I am that guy who, I was uh, at a meeting of some committee I belong to, maybe about three or four months ago, and the meeting was supposed to start at ten fifteen in the morning. So ten fifteen, actually, everybody who's in the room is in the room—the uh, facilitators, uh, the main people, and everything. Everybody was there by ten fifteen, so we weren't waiting for anybody. The there's this conversation going on with people. Uh, you know, they're comparing stories from high school and cooking recipes and all other kinds of stuff. And we're going to do about 10:25. and I am the person who rose raised my hand and said, this meeting was supposed to start at 10 15. What the hell is this high school shit? Exactly.
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: I, I actually did use those words exactly as I spoke them to you right here. Uh, because I wanted that to be a little bit shocking to create a bit of a pattern interrupt because the way I looked at it is you asked me to be here at 10.15. I showed up at 10.15 ready to do the stuff that we're supposed to be doing here, not to listen to you tell stories about your high school experience.
1: Absolutely. You want to
0: to do that, go to that bar uh, where Chad Peterson was meeting those uh, cubicle dwellers and talk about high school there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at it from... If you look at it from a millionaire or a billionaire's perspective, they are continually valuating their time. So I know what my time is worth per hour. I won't say what it is, but my time is yeah. worth X amount of an hour. And if I'm wasting my time, I, I immediately know it. I don't need somebody else to tell me that they're wasting my time. It's my job to determine whether or not this person's wasting my time or not. Because ultimately, it comes down to me and my decision. It's my fault if I let someone waste my time.
0: Yeah, my top, see, my top private clients, um, the the people I work with very closely on a daily basis, part of the deal that I have with them is it's required that we have a weekly scheduled meeting where we, um, we can strategize, we can touch base, maybe the meeting runs five minutes, maybe it runs an hour, it goes as long as it needs to up to an hour. So if, we can, uh, if it's really just uh, you know, a touching base session, we get it done in five minutes. If we have something really deep to discuss, it can go the hour. That's fine. But we don't say, well, it's an hour scheduled meeting, so let's find stuff to talk about for an hour. We don't do that. If we can get it done in five minutes, we're done in five minutes, and if each of us is respectively back to making money.
1: Correct. With
0: one okay. of my clients, we're scheduled to meet every Wednesday. By Monday morning, one of us has usually reached out to the other on Skype and said, hey, whenever you come up for air, you want to just get this over with so we can skip Wednesday? Because we both recognize that uh, the reason the Wednesday placeholder is there is to make sure it happens. But if we can grab five minutes on Monday, because that's usually all we need, we can just do that too.
1: Yeah, I like that. That's efficiency, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, with with business brokering and what I do, I sell businesses across the country. Yeah. Sometimes across the world. And to to that point that we were just speaking about, you know, I I deal with people that are self-employed, that value their time. And it's wonderful that I do. And, you know, I have on my videos out there on the web that I'm not for everybody. I'm really not because I'm serious about what I do. Correct. People that contact me, to chew the fat or, you know, I get people that call me, but you know, they'll contact me through the website and they'll fill out the contact form and say, well, I just started this business two months ago, what's it worth? I'm like, come on, you know, I mean these, so I, 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 I do everything I can to push the message out there to the market that I'm serious about this and you're more than likely not my client. If you're serious about selling your business, you must be as serious as I am about selling your business. Otherwise, this is not a fit. And by the way, I don't sell people on the idea of selling their business. That's not what I do. People contact me, and it's like they want me to convince them to sell their business. That's, I, I can't tell you. I don't have a good analogy. That I mean, that's like saying underwater airplane, okay? It makes no sense, all right? You don't call me to convince you to sell your business. You call me. So I can sell your business, right? You know, so a lot of, a lot of times people want to call me to just chew the fat and to see if, uh, if I can convince them to get them off dead center, to do something and take action. And so I try to minimize that kind of uh, wasteful time. And what I do is I help people that are self-employed move on from this advent- from, from this gig they're in to a new adventure. Yeah. And I don't retire people because, like I said, people need to work. I've never retired anybody. So people say, Oh, well, I'm not ready to retire. And I say, Well, what does that have to do with anything? You know, sell your business. But people get gripped by their business. They it holds on to them like electricity would. And it's because they more than likely were cubicle dwellers at one point. They ended up becoming successful. This business has been a, a, a cash cow. They've done well. And now they can't see the forest or the trees to move on to the next stage of their life. And the truth of it is that if you sell your business, you get to move on and move upward in the world to a greater paying adventure. And remember, it only takes 10% to buy a business. If you wanted to buy a million dollar business, it would cost you $100,000. Right. So the more dry powder you have, the more liquidity you have, the, the bigger the business you can have. So, if, a, if you want to buy a million-dollar business, that should be paying you $350,000 or thereabouts. And so, you know, annually. So, if you wanted to buy a $3 million business, again, you know, you need $300,000. So, if I could take somebody's business where they're only making one hundred and fifty dollars a year, sell it for four fifty, dollars they can walk right into a $4 million business paying them $1.3 million a year. So, but, but people don't see that. They think, you know, to put it in real estate terms, they think, "Well, I'm going to buy the starter home and live here for the next 75 years." No, you're not. You're going to buy that starter home. You're going to live in it for seven or eight, nine years. The market's going to go up. You're going to sell it for a profit. And you're going to buy a bigger house.
0: Right. right. That's, That's why they call it a starter right. home. Yes. Right. right. And, so, and, and yeah, and there is such a thing as a starter business. I have heard that term before, where somebody builds a business with this deliberate intent of selling it after a certain amount of time to move. To Closer to the business they're actually looking for. So, for example, I might start a business because uh, the market and the environment of business tell me this is a very lucrative thing to do right now. It may not be the thing I dreamed about being when I grew up, but I know this is a way to capitalize, uh, build liquidity, uh, build uh, revenue and wealth for generations. And after five years, I'm going to come to someone like you and sell it off. And then I'm going to take part of the proceeds of that sale and buy into a business that I really want to be in.
1: (coughs) That is correct. And the, the, the thing is that Even if it's not a starter business, let's just say that you've been running this business and you've been passionate about it for, let's just say, five years. Well, there's a difference between an entrepreneur and a business owner. Entrepreneurs are starters and they are creators. They're not business owners. Business owners are more the managerial type. They might have spent more time in corporate America because that's more well-suited for being a business owner, believe it or not. You know, I mean, people don't really see that though. People don't see that if you spend a lot of time in corporate America, you might be more primed to be a business owner, but a lot of entrepreneurs out there are starters and builders, but they're not maintainers. Correct. So so one of the worst things you can do to an entrepreneur is put him into a managerial role whereby he has to have his hand on that business every day, managing it, grooming it, kissing it, loving it every single day while putting up with all the daily mundane tasks of of that, what a a business manager would do. Yeah. And, And so what, what entrepreneurs fail to see is that if they get their business to a certain, let's just say it's a 12 rung ladder and they get that their business to the fifth or sixth rung, it's time to get out. And then get into something else that will fuel the passion in that entrepreneurial's gut, you know, fuel that fire to go do something else that they're more passionate about today. Because as I said before, where there's no passion, there's no profit. And when you are doing well is the time to sell. So a lot lot of people come to me and say, well, I'm doing great. Why would I want to sell my business? Okay, that, that makes no sense.
0: So that's the great time to sell. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're saying it's snowing and it's a blizzard outside and you want to wear your swim trunks. I mean, that's, that's about as, as much sense as that makes. If you're doing well, that's when you sell, you don't go to the market when you're, when if, if you own the Titanic, you don't sell it when it's sinking. You sell it when you're doing well. But again, business owners get ripped into that emotionally because they want that certainty, that emotion that drove them to get to that place. Now the business holds on to them. They're holding on to the business for dear life. They can't let go of it. And when they're doing the best is when they should sell. And that is so critical for your audience to listen to.
0: Yeah, I I know exactly what you're saying there. So let's back up a little bit because we're getting close to being halfway through this and I know that we're going to get into uh, some of the specific questions that go with business brokering and how people can leverage that to their advantage. Uh, I think you've already given us some preview of what makes a great broker sort of by telling your own story. Uh, What I'd like to do now, before we get into why somebody would want to use a broker themselves and get into a little more detail on that is, uh, let's make sure we define our terms. What makes a business saleable? Uh, We've covered that a good time to sell is when things are up. But if somebody were coming to you, for instance, and they said, hey, uh, Chad, can you help me sell my business? What are some of the things you're going to be looking for before you say, yes, I think this is a business I can help you sell?
1: Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, the first thing I'm going to look at is, is earnings, cash flow. That's the absolute first thing. So I'm going to look at the last two or three years of your tax returns. Uh huh. And I'm going to get down to the seller's discretionary earnings. That means that after you've been paid, after we account, uh, we account for company profit, we account for the cheeseburgers, the, the plane tickets, the car, the uh, 401k contributions, the health insurance, life insurance, key man insurance, uh, travel and entertainment—you know anything that that business does for you—we're going to add that all up, and we're going to come up with what we call cash flow or seller's discretionary earnings. Yeah. To, to answer your question, what I'm looking for, what what really makes a business sellable is that business owners are reporting their earnings. You know, for the self-employed, the IRS still allows us to write off things within our business. It, it allows us to. Um, have justifiable write-offs, and, you know, IRS code allows for writing off cars and plane tickets and travel and meals and entertainment, but, you know, a lot of times people overdo it, and that's fine. That's totally fine. I, I don't work for the IRS. That's fine, but when you go to sell your business, if you're not showing your earnings, if you're not paying your taxes on it, if you're not able to extract from the tax returns in some sort of category like depreciation or Justifiable ad back so we can put back in there, then you're not going to get the value. A lot of people say, Well, I'm making X amount, and I'm saying, Well, show me. I don't see it on here. Well, that's the tax return isn't really the real picture. And I say, Okay, well, I can't help you then. You know, you have to show your earnings, you have to be able to show me a cash flow. Otherwise, you're not going to get the value that you want out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, I, yeah I, I get you going. Yeah. So that's the first thing I'm looking for. The second thing I'm looking for is I'm looking at the psychology of the potential seller. I, I will, uh, I'll spend some time with the seller try to get to know them a little bit. And it doesn't take me long to understand people and where they're at because I've been in this industry for a long time. And if they're on the fence, if they are not certain they want to sell, I'll I'll have some bedside manner and I'll help them get there a little bit, but I'm not going to convince them. So they have to be certain. They want to sell. They have to have clear goals in mind. Otherwise I won't, I won't take them on board. Now I can help them shape their goals because they don't understand how to move on uh, life after their business. They don't understand how to use their money and maximize uh, their gain post sale. So I'll help them do that. But my clients are not indecisive. My clients are decisive. Hey, I want to sell in one year. Okay, great. Then let's get started. Show me your earnings. Okay, there's your earnings. Now we need to talk about value. Based on your earnings, here's your value. Does that work for you? Yes or no? And you know, one of the larger problems that I run into is that most people believe their business is worth far more than what it really is. Sure. Okay, I mean, I got people that come to me you know, with a business that's making a million bucks and they want to sell for eight million dollars. Even even I know, no, there's no way. Right. So, you know, it's one of these things where I have to manage my own expectations and so do the sellers. And, you know, a, a deal is only a deal if it makes sense. And that means that a bank has to get behind it. That means that a buyer has to get behind it. And if you have not inflated a number because you're too emotionally gripped by your business because it's been so taxing to you to build that emotionally, and so even though we look at the money, let's just say it's only $500,000 in earnings, but you want to sell your business for $2.5 million, that's because it's emotion, emotionally taxed you to death to build that business. And so you believe, you think, you wish, you hope that that business is worth far more than, than what it truly is. So I tell people, look, you're making $500,000 a year. We can sell this thing for 1.5 million or maybe $1.7 million. And then they get they get all bent out of shape. They get pissed off because the number's not high enough. So then I have to talk to them off the ledge and say, look, what could we do with this 1.5 million? Let's talk about post-sale. Let's talk about your dry powder. Let's talk about your 10% down on this next business that'll pay you a million dollars a year. So that's, that's what I have to do with people because I've seen people bite off their nose to spite their face because the number isn't high enough. They get their ego right in the way of logic. They get jammed up in their ego and they don't want to sell their business for a certain dollar amount. And I'm like, look, man, forest through the trees. Let's sell your business and move on and let's triple your income. And you know, sometimes, believe it or not, I've had people say, hell no, I'll run it for two, three more years and just, just make that money out of it. I'm not selling it for that. And those just, they're not my clients. You yeah. have to be logical. You have to be fiscally fit within your mind and making decisions based out of that part of your mind to work with me, because I can't, I can't deal with illogical people. Um, financially, it's, it's financial suicide to be gripped or emotionally tied to your business. Warren Buffett said, don't get emotionally attached to your investments, and that goes for the self-employed as well.
0: Yeah, you know this is, a, and this is a conversation um, that comes up when people talk about betting. Like I was speaking with a guy just the other day. Uh, there was a football game on, and he was a fan of one team, right? But he bet his money on the other team winning because the numbers told him the other team was gonna win. And so what it basically boiled down to is the team that he was rooting for lost, but he won because he based his bet on statistics, numbers, analysis, and probabilities rather than emotions.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it just Emotions can derail uh, yeah. anything you ever wanted to, to be good in your life.
0: Yeah. So I bring, him, yeah, I bring him up as an example of the mindset you need to have, that you can separate the emotions from the actual work you need to do to make money in a betting scenario. Like I, I like to tell people all the time that uh, you know, I, I, I bet on the last presidential election and I won $250 in the box of cigars. Uh, that's not necessarily a reflection of who I voted for or who I supported. That was me looking at the numbers, wanting to make money on my bets, nothing more.
1: Right. Yeah. So, 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 so
0: is, so is it icing on the cake of my victory or was it a consolation prize? It doesn't matter. I wasn't betting out of emotion. I was betting off of here's what I think is actually going to happen regardless of my feelings about it. And I want to earn
1: Sure. And sure to really.
0: me, you have to take that same mindset to sellability of business and what you do in business in general.
1: Correct. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Yeah. So, so that's, so these are some things we think about when it comes to sellability and one of our listeners on business creators radio show who knew you were going to be on the show, uh, wanted to run this by you. They were told by somebody who was advising them because they're considering maybe one day selling one of their businesses uh now this uh listener of ours is concerned that their business isn't perfect uh it does it is actually profitable it does make a a, you know significant amount of revenues for relatively little work in fact boy i'm ready to buy that business actually and just pretend to be that person and take them use them as my avatar i mean what the hell uh i mean we're looking at their numbers it's actually not bad at all but they feel could be a lot better and another one of their concerns is is the um, infrastructure and technology behind it is exceedingly simple. And part of the reason the business gets by as well as it does is based on the business's reputation. It doesn't really have a whole lot of organized proactive marketing behind it It's the reputation, the brand and the existing uh, traffic off the transom is so good. But imagine what you could do if you actually put some effort into it. Now, their concern is somebody might come and look to buy this business and look at it and say, you know, know, this business is all right, but it needs some work. So my question is, is does a business have to be in perfect shape to be saleable or can it be one of those fixer uppers?
1: Well, that's a wonderful question. I'm going to give you a wonderful answer.
0: All right. I like wonderful answers.
1: All right. Well, perfection only exists in the user's mind. Okay. So in the current business owner's mind, he believes that if we just did X, Y, Z, it would be perfect. Okay, but let's just look at, um, let's give you an analogy. Let's just say a Ford truck and a Chevy truck. Well, I, we could sit there and say that this one's better and here's why, and if it only had this, and it'd be better and whatever. Well, yeah, that's fine, but it's an argument. It doesn't mean it's true. So when somebody wants to come in, and they want to buy your business and you think it needs X, Y, Z. That's because you're the one running it. Okay. Now, if I listen to some health experts out there, I should be eating vegan and running five miles a day. Okay. That's what I, I, uh, I
0: do. The, yeah. And I do the former and I need to do the <laughs> latter, But go ahead.
1: Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not vegan and running five miles. a day. Yeah. Okay. Does that mean that I'm not doing things right? Absolutely not. It just means that that's one person, person's opinion. Right. So people that get caught up in perfection, they lose progress. Now, if people want to uh, sell on potential, like this gentleman who has this question, if he wants to sell based on what it potentially could do with somebody else in the driver's seat, that's, that's flawed thinking within itself. Because it's only worth what the business is producing in cash flow today. Having, right. said, having said that. The new owner could come in. He could manage it better. He could market it better. He could treat his employees better. He could pay them better. He could incentivize them better. He could uh, he could improve the technology better. All sorts of wonderful things. It's yet to be determined if that new owner has the right formula to take it beyond what the current owner does. So we're talking about a skewed vision of what we'll call perfection because it's one man's vision against another man's vision, but yet neither one of them are right. and There's multiple multiple approaches to get to success. I would say to your friend, if he has a successful business that's cash flowing, sell it while he's doing well, get it to somebody else who has a different vision. You know, it really is one of the, superpowers of the United States and every 4 years we have the chance at a new president exactly that's because people come in with a gusto and drive every 4 years to make big change
0: rather uh-huh. than
1: rather than complacency with dictators right y-
0: yeah and and, and somebody and if, and one of my major avocations is studying political history in various countries various environments various Eras. And what you see with a lot of dictatorships that run for a very, very long time is in many cases, they do start dynamically. You could have somebody who comes in and takes power and they actually have a series of well intentions. They do a lot of great things like they uh, like within 10 years. They take their country, which didn't even have running water in its capital city, and they spread electricity, running water, and sewage to every city and town and Hamlet in the entire country. That's the dynamism of I want to I you know, put my mark on this country. I'm a, I'm a reformer. I'm a builder. And, uh, yeah, I got to smack some people around to get there, but, damn it, we're going to get there in 10 years. Now, after a while, once they start staying there 10 years, 20 years, eventually they just get tired.
1: Absolutely. And, like so tired, and, so after, yeah. and
0: so after a while, all they're, uh, all they're pretty much doing is uh, showing up for their ritual re-election every five years. Absolutely. And, and, and what ultimately happens in a lot of those cases, they tend not to, to die in bed. Uh, usually some other actor who now has the dynamism of, Look, I'm, I'm, I can take this country by the horns and I can drive it. I can drive 50 years of progress in 10 years. We're lagging because this guy's been sitting around for 30 years and he hasn't done anything for 20.
1: Correct.
0: And yep. then the cycle repeats itself over and over again. Uh, if we want to speak about the American system, uh, what I like about the fact that a president serves four years is you kind of need four years because uh, our system... As beautiful as it is and as imperfect as it is, and I think those two things were designed into the model on purpose, is it kind of creaks along and it it seems to run inefficiently and it takes a long time to get stuff done. I believe that was partially by design to prevent us from being susceptible to radicalism
1: that and also a grasshopper grasshopper mentality where you're jumping exactly. idea, to idea. Right. right
0: so that being said um any president that wants to get some stuff done they need about four years because it's going to take a while to really get the ball rolling uh you don't want to leave them in there too long but you want to leave them in there long enough to have a good chance at getting some stuff done and actually seeing a positive result from it uh so that they have the opportunity to ask for another term where they can do more and it's, I think it's also great that it stops at two terms because after that, you do start to, you know, eventually see some complacency. It's the same reason why um, if you stay in the same job or you own the exact same business for too long, uh, you, you you eventually kind of start to slip off and you start just showing up to do, do the motions because the passion and the brilliance and everything else that drove you into it, well, you've played that out. You use your brilliance and your passion and you achieve something. So it's like, all right now, I need another challenge, and especially when you speak about the entrepreneur versus the business owner, the entrepreneur needs something new every few years
1: absolutely
0: the biz- the business owner or, or somebody who 's programmed to just love management, they can keep going and going and going and going in fact, you see people um, you see people who are actually professional managers uh, in many cases, we call these virtual assistants they are uh, they are the people who are really good at keeping the engine running.
1: Absolutely. And that's just not an entrepreneurial spot to be in. That's not an entrepreneur's wheelhouse. You know, I'm an entrepreneur uh, through and through. And what allows me to stay nimble in this is that every business that comes to me is a new business. So it gives me enough variety. And as one of the human needs, as one of the six human needs, we need variety and entrepreneurs need more variety. Business owners, business managers need less variety. They need more certainty. Okay. Entrepreneurs, they love uncertainty. Um, and they crave variety. So, uh, an entrepreneur wants to look at all the tasks and objectives and hurdles. They got to jump and say, watch me, watch me do this. I can do it. Yeah. Whereas a business manager somebody who's really fit to run a business is not the entrepreneur. I think one of the worst things that an entrepreneur can do is to manage a business owner. And I think one yeah. of the worst things that a business manager can do is think that he's an entrepreneur. I mean, you have to stay in your lane. You have to.
0: huh. And, and if you have somebody, and I think there's room for everybody. So um, you said earlier that you, know, you have certain challenges sitting in a bar and relating to somebody who uh, works in a in a cubicle or some sort of uh, management type position and you know that's perfectly fine they probably feel the same way about you and that's fine however both of you need each other because you complement each other's strengths
1: yeah and on some level correct yeah you you get get what I mean
0: you get what I mean as a general concept yeah I do yeah
1: I do and you know where there's strength, there's weakness, and you can't be good at all things. So yeah, I see the complimentary energy both ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, (laughs) I, I, I deal with, I deal with, I have a lot of creatives as clients and I, sometimes they get down on themselves. They say, you know, I come up with all these great ideas and I just never see them through. It's not whether or not they see them through. It's recognizing they're the creative entrepreneurial type, their role in the machine is to get it started and then turn the day-to-day or the overall management over it over to somebody else where if they continue to be involved in that business it's still from the creative angle of it but they are not getting involved in day-to-day type things uh i i can tell you that most of the and, I, and most of my clients have been great but there have been a couple and i've written about this in my books they were just absolute freaking nightmares to deal with and one of the things they have in common is they obsess over tiny details, and if you don't answer their email within three seconds, they will start tinkering with what you built, and then they'll come to you 20 minutes later saying, oops, I logged in and I fucked it all up. Now, you need to drop everything and fix it. Right. And... Uh, that's kind of how it felt. And and I and I've actually had clients use that phraseology that our listeners probably set up and said, Whoa, but they use that and then they come to me like, uh, Okay, so because they were so impatient that they couldn't wait ten minutes, they went in and destroyed the whole thing. So now that has to be everybody else's problem. Absolutely. Uh-uh. That Absolutely. That's the, and that what I saw there. In those cases, the trends I've noticed when I've thought about this over the years is these are entrepreneur types trying to be business owners.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, not, and 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 within them, there's often a trust issue where they have a real hard time trusting other people. With one of these with one of these clients, I ultimately told them That I wasn't gonna work with them anymore. And I told them candidly, because I don't think they're capable of working with anybody else, that they need to embrace the fact they need to be their own business owner and just try that out. Because it seemed to me that like nothing that anybody else ever did satisfied them unless they somehow guessed what this person's intentions were and managed to mimic it exactly. So since you're the only person in your own mind who knows how you want it to happen, then you should do it yourself.
1: I agree. And some people, some people are uncoachable. Some people um, are married to their own idea, even though they act like they're interested in getting help or getting advice that they'll ultimately go to what they want to do.
0: Yeah. And um, again, that goes back to what
1: I said earlier. I don't convince people. You you have to be ready to sell your business to contact me because if you're just calling me to chew the fat and you're still going to go with your own ideas and your own agenda, then we don't have anything to talk about. Yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, I, I, my best clients are decisive. They want to sell, they want an exit strategy. They want to maximize their brain. They want to move on to a better life. And I help them do that. And, yeah. and I love working with entrepreneurs. Uh, I like working with those who are ready to sell. And there's just such a distinct difference as we've discussed between business owners, which are basically managers in my opinion, and, uh, and entrepreneurs. That's another reason that franchises have been taking off. Now, I don't do a lot of franchise sales. I, I do some, but I try not to because I think it caters to more of the managerial side. It's like, hey, uh, come invest in this business and I'll give you a bunch of rules that you have to adhere to. You have to adhere to. And and you'll say you're self-employed, but I, really, I own your ass.
0: Right. That's really what a
1: franchise is. And yeah. So- I'm not as into that emotionally. That doesn't uh, blow my dress up, so to speak, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I just, I, I kind of stay away from them. But that's why the the franchise model has worked for some people because oh, so many people are managerial types and they want to go in their day-to-day. But yeah. true entrepreneurs are harder to find. They really are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what the franchise yeah. model does is it allows the person – who is actually more of a business owner to do something entrepreneurial because when you have a franchise, you're licensing something, which means you have to do the branding a certain way. You have to, you have if, if it has a physical location, like it's a restaurant, you have to build it according to a certain <coughs> design. And if you're taking over another building, you have to retrofit that building according to certain characteristics. Your menu has to be this. Your standards have to be this. Uh, your procedures and policies are this book. Uh, when you order the supplies for the food, you have to order them from these vendors. So a lot of the entrepreneurial decisions the entrepreneur being the person who runs the franchising company or the organization runs the franchising company, those are made for the franchisees, so they don't have to get into entrepreneurial stuff. They can feel entrepreneurial, but they're really business owners. Exactly. And for some people, that's a great combination. So they get to they get the feel of being an entrepreneur, but they can actually be a business owner.
1: Correct. Yeah. We're on the same page, man.
0: I yeah. You're, you're
1: very savvy when it comes to all this stuff. Yeah you've been, you've been around this because, you know, you you have a real good understanding of it with minimal conversation being said. I I commend you for that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, One of the things we want to cover here, and I know we have uh, maybe about 10 minutes left, is uh, when it comes to selling a business, what process or what part of that actually is often the most difficult. Maybe you've already answered this. I'm not sure, but I really want to put this out there so that people have an understanding.
1: Well, I think the hardest part is the personalities. I think, um, I think people are driven by fear, whether they want to admit it or not, they are. And the reason that I say that is because I have a front and center view of the buyer and the seller. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that everybody comes to the table with sweaty palms and fearful hearts. Yeah. And to my surprise, what I find, well, it pisses me off for one, but what I I find very peculiar about these situations is that the sellers uh, come to the table with more angst than the buyers. Now, if you think about that, that's a little screwy, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I'd say.
1: If you're a buyer, you're getting ready to spend 2 or $3 million on a business, you should be the apprehensive one but the sellers usually come to the table with more personality problems than what the buyers do. And I would say the personalities are the toughest thing. It's look, I, you know, I've, i it's kind of like that, uh, is it Rolling Stones song? You don't always get what you want, but you always you get
0: can't what you always get what you want, right. but sometimes you get what you need. Uh, we yeah. hear that. We hear that song a lot on the news these days. I'm very familiar with
1: it. Right. And It's one of those things, you know. The seller comes to the table and he wants this and he wants that and he wants max dollar and he wants this and he wants that and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. I'm like, look, buddy, you know, you got a buyer getting ready to come finance two or three million dollars. Shut up. You know, I mean, you Uh you can't get everything you want in life. You have to make a deal here. And so I had to talk people off the ledge. I had to say, look, man, let's let's go backwards a little bit. Let's put it in reverse get your calculator out. Let me show you what this person is going to have to finance. Let me show you his monthly payment to buy your business. I have to basically take, sometimes I have to take one shoe off of the seller's foot and put a buyer's shoe on so they can at least walk in one shoe of the buyer. Sometimes I have to take both shoes off and say, look, man, get in the buyer's position. Think about this. That is the toughest part of it. Now, if I can get a buyer and a seller to realize that we have to get to an agreement, that is both serving to the buyer and the seller then we can get a deal done. Yeah. But if a seller is being petulant and he's being antagonistic or if the buyer is, I'll kill the deal. Makes sense. Okay, I mean it's I don't I I'm not going to end up in litigation. I'm not going to have a buyer be put in peril. I'm not going to have a seller be in peril. So, you come to me to sell your business, we're going to do the right business. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to have authenticity. We're going to have integrity. We're going to make sure that we are showing all of our cards on the table. We're not going to be petulant. We're not going to be little brats trying to get a deal done. We're going to get a buyer and the seller, and we're going to get the deal closed. And then both parties are going to change the chapter in their life, not just a page, but they're going to change a whole chapter in their life. One is going to become self-employed and buy a business, and the other one's going to move on and take a little mini-retirement until he gets into a new business that he's more passionate about, that's more of an adventure for him. And that is really at the heart of it, the struggle.
0: Yeah. So in a way your work is part is partially the work of a matchmaker because you create the buyer seller connection. And as you all know, and it's the same, like if you uh, have a podcasting agency where you connect hosts and guests, whether you're working for the host or working for the guest, you know, that pitching one to the other is only one piece of the job. The most of the actual work that goes into that relationship is dealing with the back and forth. I know with my, with my company, In Demand Expert, uh, it was a funny thing. Um, I had a client who was a host and I had a client who was a guest. So I have this guest who I think should be, I think would be a great match for the host show. And so the host looks at this person and says, oh, I don't know. And then they list their reasons why they're not sure that person will be a great guest. Uh, you know, my My assistant Tammy and I explained to the, this host why we thought this would be a great addition to their show. And then they said, okay, that's cool. All right. Send them the scheduler. Let's get them on. So then we go back to our guests who we're representing and saying, we pitch you to so-and-so and they are excited to interview you. And now the guest says, oh, I don't know. I'm looking at that show and it's only been on the air for three months and it seems like they're interviewing the same people as everybody else. Now, meanwhile, I'm laughing internally because I know that this this host is deliberately not interviewing the same 10 people as everybody else. In fact, they have a specific lead source for guests that is different from the mainstream. And, uh, the, and overall, this guest was just missing the whole point of, why that was the optimum environment to be on, be part of the initial lineup, get the initial exposure while it's still hot, fresh and young and everything else. And, uh, and they were missing the, the real point of it, which is a networking opportunity. Yeah, was, now was, we have to sell the guest on why they should be on the show that just approved them to be on.
1: Yeah, now, yeah they're, they're seeking perfection, not progress.
0: Yeah, now, yeah, and, and this is probably a great place for us to more or less end up here because I think it encapsulates a lot of your points. So we finally get to the point where they have the interview, they record it, and they both come back to me separately, separately and say, wow, that's one of the best interviews I ever did. And all I could say to them was, Well, you know, I know you didn't want to speak with this person. I know you weren't sure if you wanted to be on this show or you uh, wanted to have this person on your show because I'm not you and I'm not the other person and I'm sitting observing both of you is who you are. I could see the synergies that neither of you could because you were both in the tunnel.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, and, I th- and I think that's part of the value that you bring to the table and help to get better deals made is because when the, and whenever you get money, people get funny about their money and emotions get involved. You're a step back from the person who's emotionally involved in having built that business and is now selling it. And the emotions of somebody who's looking to invest in something that they themselves didn't build. You will see things that the other, uh, the people actually in the deal will not, and will be able to facilitate.
1: Yes, I have a different vantage point for sure. Exactly. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. All right. So uh, by now, I imagine
0: we have some of our listeners who are leaning into this some more. Maybe they're thinking that even if they're not going to sell their business tomorrow, it is about time to start thinking about saleability because they may want to sell it at some point. Or they may have built something that up until now has no sale value, but they recognize that now is the time to reform it so that it does have sale value and who better to deal with than a broker. So somebody is interested. What's the next step?
1: Just contact petersonacquisitions.com. All of your listeners can get a free book uh, that that, that I wrote called Swinging Doors. It's a guide to selling your business. Go to the website, Uh fill fill out, get the book. I'll be in contact with any of your listeners and they'll get a free book out of it.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jan. When I go to PetersonAcquisitions.com, I'm on the website right now. I, I see that. And yeah, you're, um, yeah, and you, uh, you know, there's even more to your story than you shared with us today. And I encourage our listeners to go check that out. It's very intriguing and very fascinating. And it's certainly worth a conversation. So, uh, Chad Peterson of PetersonAcquisitions.com, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor. And believe me, in education.
1: I am grateful for being on.